As we turn to your word in Jonah 3, we pray for hearts that are awakened by grace. Whether we've been Christians for decades or we haven't yet come to faith in Christ, would you awaken us to your grace for the first time or in a fresh way? We look to you now, Holy Spirit, for strength. We pray that you would open your word to us this morning in power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Ninevite women must have gathered on that still morning before the sun was fully in the sky. They probably greeted each other softly as they came out of their homes with their water jugs thrown over their shoulders. As the smells of cooking fires and the noises of morning animal sounds filled the air. They had no idea what would happen that day. No idea that they would go to bed that night seeing things so differently than the way they woke up that morning. There's no way they could have anticipated what would happen as that worn Jewish prophet crested the hill approaching Nineveh. See, when, when God's spirit ignites God's word, no amount of rebellion, no amount of spiritual blindness can resist the brilliance of God's power. God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is like oxygen that flows through the body of a newborn baby for the first time, animating everything. All at once, we are awakened by God's grace when the Spirit gives power to God's Word. This morning, revival breaks out in the Assyrian city of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. It's not as if every Ninevite begins to genuinely worship God, but it is a widespread movement of God's power. God loves the Ninevites. And so God sends his word to Nineveh, his word of approaching judgment and of abounding mercy. And astoundingly, these enemies of God, these enemies of God's people respond in mass to God's word. Here's the main idea this morning. The grace of God has appeared. Repent and live. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, maybe you're a child or a teenager or an adult, I pray that you would be awakened by his grace this morning. You may not believe that God is real, or if you believe he's real, you may not believe that you owe him anything at all. But I pray that this morning you would be awakened by God's grace as you witness his righteous strength and his abundant mercy. And if you're a Christian who's maybe become a little too comfortable with the presence of sin in your life, too casual about the breathtaking news that God in Christ has given us life, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, I pray that your heart would be awakened to the gospel again this week, as my heart was, as you see his boundless and abundant mercy in the gospel. Let's begin verses 1 through 4, approaching judgment. It's coming. It's not here yet. Look at verses 1 through 2 of Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. Don't ever entertain the thought that God is fed up with you. 
He may discipline you. God will never abandon you. The word of the Lord comes a second time to Jonah. God gives Jonah a second chance, a second on-ramp to obey. Now, I imagine Jonah standing on this beach quite like a passenger who's just landed on a rough flight. You're just so thankful to be back on the ground. That's how I imagine Jonah. And God speaks to him in that moment. His grace appears to Jonah and to Nineveh in the form of his word. And it's the same word he spoke in chapter 1 with one change. For their evil has come up before me is what he said in chapter 1. And now in chapter 3, it's been replaced with the message I tell you, which is really a parallel meaning. And as we saw in chapter 1, this word is a promise of judgment and an offer of mercy. We know this because this is what aggravates Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, where he prays to God full of self-pity and anger, this is why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is why Jonah runs, because he doesn't want God to show mercy to his enemies. He doesn't want to go promise judgment because he knows that God longs to show mercy, that God is abundant in love, that God longs to relent from bringing disaster. But Jonah is somewhat struck and humbled by being in the belly of the fish. He's somewhat repentant, or at least sobered by God's power. And so in glorious contrast to chapter 1, in chapter 3, Jonah obeys. Look at verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. Now, we don't know where this great fish actually vomited Jonah onto the shore, but we can safely conclude it's somewhere along the Mediterranean coast. And so Jonah is walking at least 500 miles, unless the fish vomited him all the way to the gates of Nineveh, which is possible. He's walking about 500 miles northeast to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and these are Israel's chief enemies. And in a hundred years in the future, Nineveh is going to overthrow Israel. In Nahum chapter 3, verse 1, this is what's said about the Ninevites. Woe to the bloody city of Nineveh, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse, and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. This is, these are the ones to whom Jonah must go and preach, violent and ruthless. Now, what's meant by three days' journey? It's possible it's so big it takes Jonah three days to walk from south to north or east to west across the city, but archaeological evidence doesn't seem to support that. So it's possible that that's the case, and we just don't know that yet. 
Or it's possible that Jonah, it would take three days for Jonah to weave in and out of these homes and to begin to proclaim the word that God had gave him. Either way, the first day he walks through the city and he proclaims the word that God had given him. And here it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was no more. God overthrew the Nile River, and it turned from water to blood. These are high stakes, and Jonah would need to be filled with great boldness or perhaps great hatred for the Ninevites to walk into the city and proclaim this particular message. And here's the thing. Because God's judgment isn't immediate, yet 40 days. Because God's judgment isn't immediate, we are tempted to ignore it or we're tempted to downplay it. Do you doubt there's a God? Deep in your heart, do you doubt that God exists or that he, if he does exist, that you owe him anything at all? This is what the Ninevites must have been thinking. What do we care about what the God of the Jews has to say to us about our city? We're the Ninevites. We take control. We overpower those who are in front of us. We don't care what the God of the Jews has to say to us. But his judgment is approaching. Whether or not the Ninevites want to accept accountability before the God of the Jews, Yahweh is still their God. And his judgment is approaching. It's on the horizon. It's coming. It's not present yet. It's imminent. It's not immediate. Here's Paul in Athens in Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day, approaching judgment, on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He'll do it righteously. He will not overpunish. He will not underpunish. He will give only what is deserved by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you want proof? That Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead? It's in his empty tomb. The fact that God has raised him from the dead gives us assurance that Jesus will return to reward those who believe in him and to punish those who reject him. God commands all people everywhere to repent because Jesus, now risen from the dead, will judge the world. So children and teenagers... And adults, hear God's word in Hebrews chapter 4. No creature, no creature, no person is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. Approaching judgment. Hear his word and respond. And that's the good news. God sends Jonah to Nineveh not just with a word of approaching judgment, but also an offer of mercy. And that's what we see in verses 5 through 9. Awakening grace. Awakening grace. Here's what we expect. Here's what I expect. 
I expect the Ninevites to torture and kill Jonah. Or at the very least, I expect the Ninevites to laugh Jonah out of Nineveh. What do they care what Jonah has to say about anything? He's in enemy territory, and in enemy territory of a violent, menacing people, and he comes into the center of the city and promises the downfall of the city. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and I and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55 is on display in Nineveh this morning. We don't find what we expect. Instead, we find a miracle. Look at verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. Believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Blinded hearts in Nineveh are becoming able to see. The Ninevites believe God. Like Abraham believed God. They trust his word. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4 is on display in Nineveh this morning. Here's Sinclair Ferguson. God's word begins to search our hearts and touch our wills. The Holy Spirit helps the Ninevites see with new eyes. When Jonah speaks, the Ninevites don't just see a tired prophet from Israel. The Ninevites feel divine judgment rest and settle heavily on their shoulders. This is what the Spirit does when he works through the faithful proclamation of God's word. Remember Peter on the day of Pentecost? He preaches in Jerusalem. He preaches and he calls on the Jews. He confronts them for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and nailing him to the cross. And then when the crowd heard this in Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart. That's what we see in Nineveh. They are cut to the heart. The Spirit takes the truth of God's word and sears them. Open heart surgery. And they feel for the first time God's approaching judgment and his offer of mercy. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem, brothers, what shall we do? This is essentially the same question that the Ninevites are stumbling to answer. Now, the Ninevites are seeing and believing in shadowy ways. This is the childlike faith in the promise of God. They hear God's word and they trust his word. They don't have the clarity of knowing Jesus But we do see their belief leads them to steps of repentance. And it's from the least of the Ninevites to the greatest of the Ninevites. They call for a fast. They wear sackcloth. They're doing culturally appropriate signs of sorrow. Now, this revival begins to unfold before Jonah. And based on what we know from Jonah chapter 4, he cannot be happy about this. His heart must begin to rumble with anger as he sees what he knew was going to happen when he came to preach the word in Nineveh. Well, news of the spreading revival makes its way to the king of Nineveh, who's got to be furious. 
Here's this faraway prophet who marches into the city. How dare he pronounce the fall of Nineveh? Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Imagine the nobles standing around the king. I assume some of them were probably cut to the heart in the same way many of the people of Nineveh were. But there have to be skeptics in the throne room who are wondering why their weak king is cowering to a foreign god. How dare he get off his throne and take off his royal robe and put on sackcloth and sit down in ashes. He's traded his throne for ashes. He's traded his royal robes for clothing of sackcloth. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Look at verses 7 and 8. And the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. That's an image, a beast covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Now the king declares a decree that all Nineveh must obey. But listen, the revival has already begun. The revival has already started. The people of Nineveh, from the least to the greatest, are already repenting. The king comes along and says, yes, more of this, more of turning from evil, more signs of repentance and sorrow, more calling out mightily, fiercely to God. Now, I'm not arguing that every Ninevite believed. I'm not arguing that every repenting Ninevite was authentic. In every community of God's people, there seem to be imposters who are invested for selfish or insincere reasons. But this does seem to be an authentic revival. Jesus in Matthew 12, also in Luke 11, tells the Jewish leaders of his generation that the Ninevites of Jonah's generation, the ones who repented at the preaching of Jonah, those Ninevites of Jonah's generation will rise up at the final judgment and condemn the Jews of Jesus' generation for rejecting him. The Ninevites of Jonah's generation accept God's word. They believe God's word. They trust his word. The Jews, in a large part, in Jesus' generation, reject him, reject his words, reject what he's doing. Here's Sinclair Ferguson again. The Ninevites didn't just feel sorry for their sin. They abandoned their sin. They turned their back on their sin. God's word shines a spotlight on their rebellious, self-centered lives, and they begin to revolve their lives around him. Ninevite hearts are awakened by grace, and they respond, some of them, with authentic repentance. Authentic repentance that begins with belief. Faith, belief is the first thing that happens, 
And then they demonstrate their belief by turning away from sin and calling out to God. The Ninevites are turning from their evil ways. And they're doing so expectantly. Look at what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Doesn't this sound like the captain of the ship and the sailors? Let's call out to God. And maybe he'll turn from his wrath. God's approaching judgment. The fact that God will judge the world in the future is so distasteful to our world today that the church can almost become embarrassed by it. Embarrassed by God's judgment. It's like embarrassed for dad's anger, right? Here's Sinclair Ferguson one more time. Christians sound this note, the note of judgment. The note of judgment is sounded by every preacher from Moses to Jesus. Don't think of it as a lack of love. Rather, it is an act of love. You see, if we believe that judgment is approaching and we love the people around us, then we will risk the relationship to speak the truth in love about the approaching judgment that is to come. And we will hold out the same offer of mercy that God, His grace has appeared. And so we may repent and live. And being awakened by grace isn't a one-time act. It begins a lifetime of abandonment of sin and turning to God. This is who the church is. A people who live lives of repentance and turning to God. In the year 354, going way back, Augustine is born in Algeria, in North Africa. Now, before Augustine is saved by God, he lives a remarkably promiscuous life. Here's Spurgeon recounting a particular day in Augustine's life. After Augustine's conversion, he met with a woman who had been the sharer of his wicked follies. She approached him winningly and said to him, Augustine. But he ran away from her with all speed. She called after him and said, Augustine, it is I, mentioning her name. But Augustine then turned around and said, but it is not I. The old Augustine is dead, and I am a new creature in Christ. Augustine is living out the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.14. One has died for all, Jesus. Therefore, all have died, all who are with him in his death. He died for all that those who might live, live with him in his resurrection, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Of all people, of all people, Christians must take their own sin seriously. We have tasted the mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, don't presume on God's grace. Don't trample on the gift Jesus won for you in his death and resurrection. Don't indulge your sin in secret, pretending that God doesn't see you sailing on that ship to Tarshish. 
Don't make excuses for your sin. Giving yourself a pass. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6. Here's our call this morning, church. Let's commit to see our sin as part of the greater story that God is writing. We were Ninevites, confronted by the approaching judgment of God. And we grabbed hold of his offer of mercy when we were awakened by grace. We saw the goodness of God and we longed for him. And the Spirit of God is now at work in our lives, conforming us into the image of Christ. There's a larger story to our sin. Zoom out and see it. We must be marked by authentic repentance. Abandon your sins. Treasure Jesus. Think practically this morning, where do you need to abandon sin? Where have you been overly patient with your sin? Where have you been secretly indulging your sin? Kick it into the light in prayer. Tell someone else what you're praying about. And then take steps to abandon it. And not just the things on the surface that people can see. Go at the heart. I've been pulling vines off the fence that surrounds our property. It's easier to just grab the vines from the top and pull them off. That's what, that's what you can see. But they grow back in just a few weeks. What's harder but more productive is to trace those vines back to, the, back to the root and then to pull the root out and then to grab the vines that you can see. Don't just focus on the surface sins in your life. What is driving it? Not just confessing your anger, but asking yourself the question, why am I so angry? And what we will find when we authentically repent, what we will find is the same thing the Ninevites found. Look at verse 10, abounding mercy. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God sees what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. He sees the authentic repentance, and he relents from bringing disaster. So, if we just clean up our lives, then God will relent from bringing disaster. No, that's not it. What's the first thing that happens? God speaks a word of approaching judgment. The Ninevites hear God's word and they believe. And their belief leads them to turn from their evil ways and to call out to God. But how does this answer the question of how God's righteous judgment is satisfied? Is it righteous of God to just ignore the sins of these violent people? These are ruthless, bloodthirsty people. How could God just 
turn away? How could he just relent? That doesn't seem just to the victims. It seems like God is just winking and turning the other way. In Luke chapter 11, the crowds increase around Jesus. He's just teeming with popularity. And they're hungry for a sign. They want Jesus to authenticate his preaching. He's saying all these things about coming judgment and being the Messiah and the Christ. They want to see a sign. They want to see a miracle that Jesus is who he said he is. That he can validate his authority to say such things. And Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty nine, 29, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah was a preacher. Jesus was a preacher. And each of them, Jesus says, is a sign to their respective generations. Well, how is Jonah a sign? What's the sign of Jonah? Here's Jesus in a parallel passage in Matthew 12. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah that accompanied his preaching was his three-night stay in the belly of that fish. The sign of Jesus that will accompany his preaching is his death, having his body committed to the tomb for three days and then rising from the dead. This is what we have in the sign of Jonah. Now, Maybe Jonah told the Ninevites what had happened to him. Maybe in the course of his preaching, he made it clear to them what had just happened. Maybe they smelled the fish on his skin. I don't know. Maybe the sailors who threw him over, maybe they saw the fish swallow him. We don't know. But Jesus says it was a sign. Being in the whale and then out of the, or the fish, and then out of the fish was a sign of what had happened. Jesus uses this as an example to call the Jewish nation to believe. Here's Luke 11 again. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The grace of God revealed with most clarity in Jesus is the link. He is the link between approaching judgment and awakening grace and abounding mercy. Jesus is the thing that makes all those make sense. Jesus is how God is able to be steadfast and loving and relent from disaster and still be just and holy and righteous. Because it's in Jesus' death that our sins are counted. Here's Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So let's conclude. If you've not yet decided to come to faith in Christ, 
Won't you come even now? Even now, during this sermon, the Spirit is convincing you of the reality of approaching judgment. At least that's my prayer. Abandon your sin with me and throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. He offers you freedom from slavery to sin. He offers you everlasting life in his presence. And if you already belong to Jesus, won't you recommit this morning to treasuring him, to a life of faith in him and glad obedience? Won't you ask the Spirit to reveal areas of your life where you're withholding, where you're not turning, where you're hiding sin and indulging it in quiet? And when you come to him, don't think that he's rolling his eyes. Here they come again. Now, God is not a reluctant father. God is not stingy with grace. He comes with the eagerness of the father of the prodigal son. The son's gone, and then the son finds the bottom, and the son returns home. And where does he see his father? The father sees him because the father is longing for his return. He's longing for his son to crest the hill and return. And then he pulls up his robe so he can sprint to his son and wrap his arms around him. My son was lost and now he's found. That's the heart of your father. That's the abundant mercy that we have in Christ. The fatted calf is slaughtered. The guests are assembled. My son, my daughter has returned home. That's the mercy of God. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.